Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging technology, trends and opportunities in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Ralph Tor, and I'm the Programme Manager for the Floating Offshore Wind Centre of Excellence. The Floating Offshore Wind Centre of Excellence programme is run by the RE Catapult. The Catapult is the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We work with agile technology developers, academia and the world's leading industry players to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. Last month, the Grand Estate Scotland announced its Scotland leasing round results, which saw 17 projects offered option agreements for offshore wind project development in Scottish waters. In return, Grand Estate Scotland is in line for more than £700 million in fees for those option agreements. This presents a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Scottish innovation to drive economic and supply chain growth and job creation within offshore wind. Perhaps most noticeable is the significant proportion of new projects that will be floating wind, positioning Scotland and the UK at the global forefront of this transformative new technology. But what do the results actually mean for innovation, supply chain, economic growth and Scotland's journey to net zero? Our conversation today with relevant industry experts hopes to answer just that. Hi, I'm Ben Miller. I'm the Senior Policy Manager at Scottish Renewables, and my remit is offshore wind and marine renewables. I've been working with Scottish Renewables for a couple of years now, and the Scotland outcome is, is probably the biggest thing that we've been working towards in that period. Vicky O'Connor, I'm the Technical Manager for Northern Power based in Glasgow, originally from Ireland. In the context of Scotland, I was our, our bid manager. I sit within the development team for Europe, pretty much anywhere where technical and commercial meet. So like Ben, this has been a big chunk of my time the last two years, so looking forward to discussing. Okay, so I guess if we start off by talking a little bit about what the Scotland process actually is, and I guess why it exists. Ben, if I could ask you just to kind of briefly explain what exactly is Scotland and why it was created? Scotland, I suppose, is the, the highly anticipated first seabed leasing process since Crown Estate powers were devolved to Scottish ministers back in, I think it was 2017. It's the culmination of a process that stretches back quite some years, being intertwined as it is with the sort of spatial planning process, the creation of a sectoral marine plan for offshore wind, and that itself took several years of development and stakeholder consultation. And then the leasing process was, was able to take place on the back of that. It's also probably worth highlighting the different style of leasing process that the Scotland has sought to be, that Crown Estate Scotland have tried to make it. So unlike the round four process down south in England and Wales, which focused probably more on price at the closing stage of the auction, at least. Scotland was designed to look in detail at the projects that were proposed, the experience of those putting them forward, and a sort of scoring mechanism on the back of that that incorporated a price element, but was perhaps a little bit more holistic. And the idea was to get the highest quality of bids to sort of strengthen the pipeline of projects going forward in Scotland. So I guess ultimately Scotland is the process that the Scottish government are using to grow the offshore wind industry in, in Scotland. But yeah, could you just maybe explain a bit more about why it is such an important tool for the Scottish government and more broadly, I guess, particularly in the context of net zero ambitions and the like? Absolutely. Well, we're going through a process at the moment, uh, or well, the Scottish government, sorry, going through a process of, of looking again at their energy strategy, the overarching energy strategy that all of our different types of renewable energy are playing a role in working towards. Clearly, seabed leasing for offshore wind, seabed leasing is, is a central part of offshore wind delivery. 
because these option agreements will give developers the security to take forward the development of their projects to the next stage with much greater knowledge, I suppose, about the overall landscape, the pipeline of projects, which helps with a lot of the conversations on all fronts, really, but particularly supply chain. The results both the end of a lot of work that's got us to this point, but also the start of a pretty long journey ahead to bring about that next generation of, of Scottish offshore wind farms. Offshore wind's place in, in the sort of net zero future that we're working towards is clearly pretty central and, and probably much bigger than perhaps we might have thought of five or 10 years ago. And when we were just beginning to see the first commercial scale offshore wind farms around the UK coast. And I guess the other thing that's probably worth highlighting is that we keep talking about Scotland and referring to the latest or the the recent results, but in theory, Scotland at least is a process of leasing rounds, plural. I guess at this stage, we have fairly limited details about what may follow, but my understanding at least is this is the beginning of a process the Scottish government are going to use to grow a portfolio of offshore wind projects around Scotland. I'm guessing, Ben, at this stage, we don't know too much more about what happens in the future in terms of further leasing rounds when where and how but i'm right in thinking that the theory at least is that this is the beginning of the process and and so scotland as a process isn't just one allocation or option agreement round it's it's the beginning of a series of rounds that will take scotland forward over the coming decades ultimately i think that's right ralph we know that there's going to be this intog round for oil and gas decarbonisation and, and innovation as a separate stream. But there was a lot of speculation before the Scotland announcement about Scotland 2, Scotland 3. I believe that that is perhaps a little bit on pause because of the scale of the result that came out from Crown Estate Scotland and how much they were able to fit into the 8,600 kilometres squared that they were allowed to lease as potential projects. So I think there will be further iterations, but it's all bound up, as I said at the start, about the sectoral marine plan, how that evolves, what the potential impacts at scale would be of expansion of offshore wind right around the coast. And that really is, is driven from the top by policy, whether there are longer term targets and how it all it kind of flows back from that through the planning process. I guess if we start now looking more towards the kind of outcomes of this first Scotland round, I mean, there's been a lot of press coverage over the last couple of weeks about this and a number of things I think are kind of regarded as being very interesting about the results. I mean, the sheer scale of interest in the bidding round was pretty significant. So I think kind of 74 applications in total, which have delivered to date, you know, 17 option agreements. You've got a huge variety of organisations involved as well. We've seen the main kind of incumbent players engaging in Scotland, but also a number of new players coming from different parts of the world, but also from different backgrounds. And some of the energy majors from oil and gas have really focused on Scotland as their first main play into offshore wind and then developers from other places as well. And I think, you know, we've also seen some of the bids for the first time really assuming quite innovative business models. So at the heart of all the bids is obviously kind of large scale wind energy generation, but some of the bids are quite openly talking about integrating that into large-scale kind of green hydrogen production. So a a really kind of interesting set of results. Vicky, I'll kind of ask you a bit more now to give us some thoughts about your view as one of these developers who's been successful in Scotland. Firstly, I'll just get you maybe to explain a little bit about Northland Power and the background of your organisation, but also a bit about what, I guess, interested you guys and attracted you guys to the Scotland process itself. Funny enough, they're quite intertwined. So once you hear our profile, <laughs> Scotland starts to make sense. So Northern Power were started in 1987 in Canada as a, an independent power producer. So it started off with a, some biomass, CHP actually, did a bit of gas fire generation in, in the early 90s and then stepped into renewables in about 2000. So pretty early. 
and that was in onshore wind and solar in Canada. And then I guess relevant to this, that the big step forward, both for the business to the topic at hand here is we stepped into option win in 2014, again, slightly ahead of the curve. And, and that was investing in Gemini in the Netherlands. So actually to date, that's still the largest project, I think, per number of turbines and cables and foundations. So good one to have in our back pocket. And then we also moved into Asia in 2016. So you could kind of say the, the trajectory over the years, we've always been a little bit ahead of the curve. And in that time, we've obviously grown considerably. We've gone from a few people in, in Toronto to global offices, regional development teams within the different regions, where we've got three operating offshore wind farms in, in the North Sea and quite a healthy development pipeline as well in Poland and Germany and, and also in Asia. So I think for us, the big picture is that we're a long-term owner-operator. We've never sold down our projects. We have a real history of investing in communities. I think near all, if not all, of our projects in Canada are with First Nations communities as well as equity owners through the life of the assets. So you could say that we're a little bit different in that we tend to look for projects that really add value and we're shareholder-owned. So that's also driven by our, our business model as well. So Scotland really played to that level of wanting to hand these zones to people with experience, with capability, with the ability to get projects to consent, but obviously open to the challenges that come with looking at these projects and, and where they are in, at this stage. So the fact that it was based on demonstrable experience, was based on supply chain commitments, there obviously was a, a bidding element, but it wasn't going to be the type of price war that we saw down south. So those things were very attractive to us. And the UK itself has been on our radar for quite a while, you know, having projects right here in Europe and, and further afield in Asia. Um, to be honest, I think we were just waiting for the right entry point. And Scotland really offered us that. And it's you've seen as well, we've bid solar, which is one of the only few. And we're only, I think, one of three groups that, that have a fixed and floating project as well. So really exciting times. But I think that element of being able to work with communities and think about that long term you know, not just the development or the construction period really attracted us to Scotland. And Ben, do you think Scotland's kind of attracted organisations and encouraged organisations to take a slightly different approach? Not, not in all circumstances, but certainly it seems that there is some genuinely different approaches being taken by a couple of organisations here and, and the process that Scotland have used seems to have facilitated that. I don't know if you guys in Scotch Renewables have done much thinking about what that means or whether that was surprising. There was certainly a, a really wide range of organizations that applied to Scotland and there were some obvious big players that didn't succeed and a few surprises in there. So it was, it was very interesting to see the range of projects floating, fixed and all around the Scottish coastline. I don't think there was any assumption that necessarily there'd be a project in, in almost every one of the plan areas, but to have projects stretching from the Isla area right round up to Lewis where Northland's sites are and then Orkney and right down the East Coast, great quite a lot of opportunity for expanding the influence and the possibilities of offshore wind in those communities. I think that's probably one of the more exciting things and you know how that all coalesces into investment in supply chain and jobs is one of the biggest questions, I suppose. But I think the whole sector is now able to move forward in a bit more of a strategic way and look at how we can build that success in the port sector, which there's ports on every bit of our coast that there's opportunity to be grasped, I think, in, in lots of exciting ways. So yeah, it's good to, to see Falk, who are a member of ours, and all the other winners, and they all bring something a bit different, I think. That's what makes it quite an exciting sector to be looking at going forward. In terms of kind of anticipating and digesting the outcomes, I mean, the people I've spoken to probably fall into two different categories. I would say most fall into the kind of surprised category, I we weren't quite expecting that. And then we have a couple who are kind of surprised that everybody's so surprised. Um, I guess, Ben, coming back to you, you know, to what extent is the outcomes you know the kind of scale of the awards so 25 gigawatts and, and i guess the variety of players involved 
To what extent is that genuinely completely unexpected and unprecedented? Or, or do you think on reflection, Scotland was always gearing up to deliver something like that? I don't know if you guys got any views on that, Ben. There was a great deal of speculation about what the result might look like, particularly on the floating wind side. And of course, only a very small number of people at Crown Estate Scotland and partners really knew the reality of the bits. And they're very keen to emphasise that they don't lease gigawatts, they lease seabed. And the sector marine plan gave them a particular footprint of seabed that they could lease. And it was up to the projects to put forward what they thought they could do with those spaces. That said, I think there was quite a lot of surprise about the 24, 25 gigawatts of potential projects that, that come forward from the 17 option agreements but that's in a way a, a long-term play i think it's a long-term approach which looks at where we are in the process and sees that we've got to put a lot of opportunity on the table and, and hopefully get as many if not all of those projects consented and through a very lengthy process i guess if you were to try and summarize what you see the main kind of challenges being not on a project specific basis but the kind of broader challenges these projects have you know what do you foresee them being any thoughts on what the whole sector needs to be doing to try and make progress Ben your any thoughts on that I'll start us off I mean it could we could talk for hours but I think broadly they can be grouped into grid consenting challenges and supply chain and each of those really it's the same issue at the heart of it, which is collaboration. And can we get projects to collaborate when so often they're forced to compete? So they come out of a competitive seabed process and their eyes are already on competitive CFD rounds when they want to get the projects delivered and constructed. But in the middle, there's this sort of very short window where we can try and get developers and all those related supply chain companies and stakeholders that have a really important role in this as well, all to talk to each other and say, look, what does this all add up to? Can we be a bit clever about this? Let's not duplicate. Let's create the right structures. I guess, Vicky, as a project developer, there's two elements to your approach to this. So you've got the project-specific challenges that largely you guys are going to have to kind of crack on with and address yourselves. But then you'll want to play a role in the kind of broader collaborative activities whereby you'll be sitting down with a group of other developers who have the similar challenges. So I don't know if you can just give us a couple of thoughts about the areas where you see opportunities to kind of collaborate with other developers to address those areas. Just kind of any thoughts on areas that are particular interest or areas where you guys are, are kind of already doing a bit of work to collaborate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where we're at the Catapult Centre of Excellence, um, moving into floating you want to be in a place where you're doing it with others. And so the UK and specifically Scotland was the attractive point for us to enter floating alongside that technology that we understand with fixed bottom as well. So I think for us as a business case, this works quite well to have those two elements together in, in a single market and whatever activities with stakeholders or engagement with the supply chain or other developers, we hope that you know we'll, we'll get those benefits across both projects. But, but certainly I would have to echo what Ben said about collaboration. It's not something that we're designed market-wide and business case wise to do and, and has been difficult in other markets, particularly where, you know, you're then also fighting for supply chain or offtake or other things. I think, though, the, the kind of two things that the results have really brought, we need that scale to enable us to know that we can spend this time and effort in engaging with each other. And I think the other thing is we need to think about long-term investment. And that's not just developers, that's the supply chain within itself and, and also with you know governments both devolved in Westminster. And I think not to put too fine a point on it, but we don't have the benefit in other offshore markets of interest right now that we have such whatever's happening in, in Westminster at the moment, we do have many, many policy documents. And between Westminster, Deval governments, we've spoken to everyone from local councillors right up to MSPs and MPs. And 
this is going to happen and it is going to happen and it's tied to these net zero targets, you know, Scotland being even more ambitious again with five years earlier than the rest of the UK and Europe. So if you think about it from a kind of long-term investment play, this is where you want to do business. We have a mature market. We have the ability to take experience from other industries, be it oil and gas, be it aerospace, and bring that to the fore. So, you know, it's really like that. The devil is in the detail. It's going to be in how do we take all of that? We're in the right place at the right time with the right people. Now we need to actually make it work. And I think cluster groups like Deep Wind, cluster groups like Forth and Tay, it would be great if we could get something to the cluster builder that Scottish Enterprise are doing so that the fixed bottom also have a, a sort of talking point as well. But certainly I think we obviously want to have the right group speaking to one another and not just talking, but actually acting. But I think certainly the the level of interest is there. The wind resources, you know, having a background in wind analysis is there. So it really is just making sure that we can take that opportunity together. And I do think there will have to be something looked at in terms of the fact that we are right now on paper going to have to compete for offtake together the similar rounds to one another. And so if we're serious about supply chain engagement and we're serious about collaboration, then we do maybe have to think about how do those two things sit together and how can we maybe think about other ways of of approaching that because it will be very difficult on one hand to have these great intentions and on the other hand be directly competing with one another so mm-hmm. for me as someone who lives here and someone who moved to Scotland to work in this industry I'm a bit of a you know a pseudo Scot and mm-hmm. I really just want to see this really benefit Scotland and I think most people that I speak to do and so really it's making sure that we have the right framework that allows us to take intention and make it action because absolutely this has to be a just transition. There's communities in Scotland that haven't benefited from other industries and they happen to be in some of the windiest and most lucrative places in Europe for renewables. So we do need to have it be a just transition and, and being mindful like that of this is going to be an all Scotland and, and probably even wider UK with Celtic Sea as well. So I think leadership would be great. And I think you know, what we've tried to do certainly is take a kind of big picture approach with some of the specific working groups that we've joined. And then also know that from the bottom up, from the project level, we've taken a really, really hyper local focus and at least cover our bases in that sense. But certainly there, there feels like there's a lot more to do. And now that we have people who won and we can talk more openly, I think that's definitely been the reaction from some even of our competitors that have been, you know, we've all been wishing each other well since the results came out. And there does seem to be a feel, particularly around grid, I think there could be a very near-term need to collaborate. Yeah, I guess in terms of, I mean, the flip side of all these challenges, the, you know, opportunities to, to somebody, um, and, and I guess particularly with a focus on the supply chain, Northland, you've already talked about a couple of areas here. So you've talked about the kind of enhanced in community engagement and involvement in your project, and then the kind of long-term owner-operator view that you guys have. So they're kind of project-specific things that you can influence on a project level but in terms of making sure the broader Scottish supply chain benefits from this you know that that's not just a project by project kind of challenge there's even for yourselves you know grid infrastructure upgrades ports you know all this stuff is stuff that the developers need to be working on with other stakeholders kind of on mass so yeah got any thoughts about what the broader industry can be doing to make sure that those collective activities progress at the right pace and I guess appropriately targeted as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what would be great to see is all of the winners in some form of group that does have those forums to speak and give opinions. So I think, you know, Scottish Renewables would join really early or UK, you know, 
I do notice that there are some winners who aren't maybe as active and hopefully will become more active. I think, you know, it is obviously Scotland is a little bit further out from a few other projects in the near term, but I do think it means that we do have to be conscious of what structures are already in place and how we can engage in those and through the different industry bodies, both Scottish and Renewable UK. But I think what we've certainly been doing is, and this goes back to our sort of owner operator approach, we look at procurement and, and all sorts of supply chain engagement on a portfolio level. So even before the bids went in and we're procuring our projects in Poland and Germany and even in Asia, people are already asking you about Scotland. So the market themselves are already thinking like this. And the fact that, for instance, Siemens bid with mainstream on W1 was a signal again. Their intention was to hopefully you know, replicate what they did on Hornsey down in Hull. So I think certainly the interest on a, on a really corporate, this is going to happen. We want to be there. And I think it's that bit in between. It's how do your tier twos, your tier threes, how does the really local supply chain engage with that sort of level and I think there's definitely room for developers to push and and open that up but I do think that you know maybe there's something that could be coming from the supply chain groups as well because there's only so much the developers will engage with at certain levels of development and it's really for the kind of meeting of minds almost by the time that we're going to look for particularly when it comes to supply and equipment but I think what we've also been saying to people when we meet them is we've a long development period we have development services that need doing everybody needs bird surveys geotech geophys oxo everyone's going to need those things too. And I think there's still significant benefit to local supply chain if those opportunities are realized as well, because I know it's not the cool and the extra zeros that you know some of those services attract, but it's certainly over a period of time and a number of projects. And then also being able to potentially think about, like you mentioned, other leasing rounds, whether it's, you know, Intog, whether it's Scotland too, people can see that there's opportunity to invest in development services, then there may be other opportunities for them too. So I think O&M is, feels quite a long time away, but we, you know, we've already had some of those conversations. Our head of O&M is first day talking to us about Scotland and said, what are people doing you know, in these areas already that are transferable? And we started looking at engaging in STEM topics more locally because we're thinking you know, secondary school kids and primary school will be our staff in, in a number of years. So I think we do have to be thinking about what's available and when, and then trying to make sure that there's a tangible way for people to see the opportunity and see what's coming. But I think that puts the onus on the developers as well to be clear on their pathway and what they will be looking to achieve and when, because just like anything, you need to know what's out there to know what you can then support. But certainly, I think if we could get the tier ones and the sort of lower levels of the supply chain more engaged with one another now that it's real, I think that could be a really big opportunity to get them ready for when we then start needing to procure for some of those. Ben, I don't know whether you can give us some thoughts about what sort of activities and opportunities you know, Scotland needs to be making the most of between today and the really big Scotland projects going in the water at the end of the decade or, or kind of 2030-ish. But one of the most interesting things, I suppose, we'll be seeing in, in around April time when the option agreements have been signed, we'll get much more information publicly about the supply chain development statements and the supply chain commitments that the bidders had to make. And then we can start to piece together what the different projects look like. These 11 projects with a floating wind element, you know, perhaps what foundation types and, and materials are being proposed. The kind of overall, I suppose, I didn't really touch on floating wind in my earlier comments when I was talking about barriers, but in terms of opportunities, I mean, the floating wind bit is just enormous. I mean, I think, you know, not only did Scotland have the first floating wind farm, and then now we have the, the largest one with Kincardin, but now we have the most seabed anywhere in the world that's dedicated to commercial scale floating wind development. 
So these really puts Scotland in a great position. We've got that deep water expertise from our oil and gas past and current operations. Then there's also, as Vicky mentioned, this discussion about a just transition and how we can draw across that knowledge and, and those skills to this new bit of the blue economy sector that we're trying to build here. Yeah, no, thanks, Ben. No, that, that was that was great. And I guess, Vicky, you're submitting your bids and on the understanding that your projects are targeted to be in the water at a reasonable distance ahead in time. You're having to probably take a view as to what you think is going to happen between now and then and what impact that's going to have on de-risking technologies or growing supply chain so yeah i guess you although even if you're not directly involved in these activities you know you guys as a developer as the other scotland developers are you really need these activities to happen and and to have the impact so that you guys can build on that at the larger scale as well Exactly. And I think we still, particularly on the floating side, we obviously have a lot of different technologies still going through their commercialization phase. So, you know, having those seed projects or pilot projects or whatever happens between now and the sort of point at which you really need to start narrowing down your design will be of major benefit to all the Scotland players. And I think key to that will obviously be trying to generate that value add in whatever way, you know, it can come from the design and where that's going to be fabricated, it can come from the secondary steel, it can come from moorings, it can come from pure logistics and marine support. So I think more and more, you're going to have to develop your project with a line of sight to whatever else is going on. You can't just plow ahead, singularly silo one project. And again, that's sort of part of the benefit of having a fixed and a floating project is we will be actively needing to keep an eye and, and keep in touch with everything that's going on, but not just because we have a floating project, but because we're trying to do two things at once and try to do them well and add value and be competitive against the competition when the competition comes. But certainly that's why I think groups like Catapult and the kind of industry groups, particularly where they are active and less just talk, are, are critically important because we are all going to be tied on resource and time to have these things happen informally or happen at conferences, where it's going to have to be very active. And like I say, we're going to have to find a way to break down some of the barriers we've had in the past where we've been forced by external <laughs> drivers to be very alone and be very siloed and putting it then on the supply chain to talk to us all individually and somehow from all the information they get try and understand how all of these things are going to happen so i mean you can see it in in a chart if you look at 2024 because of the delays with cfds and other things we suddenly get eight gigawatt all in one year i mean if I was in the supply chain, how would I ever plan for that opportunity and then realize it when there's been so little ahead of time, so ahead of that? I think really the developers are going to be in the exact same position as the supply chain because we're having to invest DevEx and, and wider investment at certain milestones and know that certain things have been due risk and things have come to light. So more and more, I think the supply chain and, and the developers are going to be in a much more similar position than say they have been up to now. Just to pick up on one of the things Vicky was saying about offtake and CFD, I think there's some indication from Bayes that they're likely to move to more regular CFD rounds, which might help to smooth that trajectory a bit. We're not even mentioned really green hydrogen, but that huge debate about how many of the Scotland projects have that as an element and an increasing move towards sort of clusters and very interlinked projects. Some of them have already publicly said that they've got proposals to link to gas terminals and local offtake and industrial supply and that, that kind of thing. So the landscape is changing. Who knows where we'll be in 10 years when some of this stuff is, is still being built. But a more holistic approach is, is certainly quite exciting because we're trying to do lots of things at once. We're trying to move away 
from North Sea hydrocarbons. We're trying to link up our island economies, the interconnectors and the kind of ideas of a North Sea grid. We might have hydrogen being exported. We're expanding onshore wind. We're expanding offshore wind. There's a lot in play at the moment. I suppose it's all going to come together. Someone's got to write this strategy, haven't they? That's actually a really good point, Ben, because it wasn't until I was at the Scottish Renewables COP event and okay, and I've been in this Scotland bubble for the last 18 months. And then suddenly they put up the target of, I think, is 11 or 12 gigawatt for onshore wind by 2030. And I looked to an old colleague of mine, I said, wait, you're just going to be just as busy as we are. And he was like, yeah, exactly. So I think even collaboration between on and offshore, I think is something that definitely I hadn't grasped that so much was happening onshore as well. And we're going to be looking for grid and onshore works as well. So definitely room for collaboration. 10 years time, Vicky's going to have her projects in the water. Ben, you're going to be able to tell us what the state of the industry is. So, yeah, I guess just a, a couple of thoughts from you both. Vicky, I'll probably start with you first. So, yeah, the projects that you've got in Scotland, what's the kind of timescales associated with them? Everybody's talking about 2030. So what's your view as to when these projects would realistically be getting in the water, so to speak? Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to our two project strategies. So naturally, our fixed bottom project should hopefully be on a quicker timescale. It's technology we're, we're kind of familiar with and the industry is too. I think obviously the big driver there will be the offtake and the grid, um, so the route to market. We'd obviously be keen, given the difference in option fees between up here and down south, to be in time to compete with some of the round four projects that are also fixed bottom, but a lot further from shore and, and spending a lot more money on their option fees while they develop. So I think we would hope to be in a, a position earlier for N4 to come forward. So that would be more the late 20s in our view. Then our N2 site obviously is, is similar to other floating projects. It's far from shore, but not too far from shore. And it is in deep water. But I think the drive there would be to make sure that we're getting the best benefit of what has happened in the intervening time during our development phase, making sure that we're understanding the site to the best way we can. And like most, you know, that's going to be, again, driven by the route to market for grid connection. So at the moment, we're sitting with an offer for 2033. We'd hope with the holistic network design that comes sooner. But I think, you know, one of the reasons we went where we went was we have a history of rolling up our sleeves and sitting at kitchen tables and, and talking to communities and, and putting ourselves forward as opposed to sitting behind a desk. And those were the places where that will be required even more in, in the Highlands and Islands. And I think we also know that the wind resource is not in question at all. So, you know, if you can harness that and play to it and obviously deal with the challenges that it brings with, with transport and installation and mid ocean conditions in other parts of the world, I have colleagues worried about having too little wind and really trying to drive everything else around the fact that the fundamental thing they're trying to gain uh, energy from it just is the limiting factor. We don't have that. We have quite the opposite. So I think with N2, it's going to be mostly driven by grid and then obviously the, the commercialization of floating. But I would assume that there's going to be a way for these projects to compete in a meaningful way against one another. And so obviously, the sooner you can do that, the better as well. So I think we're motivated, absolutely. With Northen, I probably didn't give a, a fulsome intro. There's lots on our website and our investor decks and everything. But quite honestly, we're motivated. we very selective in where we go and why we go there. So I think this isn't about a you know flags on the ground or megawatts or gigawatts kind of to satisfy targets. We're not like that. So I think it was quite a meaningful thing for us to invest invest you know, our time and our actual investment in Scotland. So I think we'll be wanting to see them come to life. And I, I know our communities want to see things happening as well. They don't want it to be a, let's have lots of discussions and then things take forever. A lot of these communities have waited a long time for other things and kind of want to be making progress. Ben, any final comments to you? I mean, 2030 is going to be a big year. We've got offshore policy statement, which I think, you know, is talking about somewhere between eight and 11 gigs offshore. But, you know, 2030 is a really difficult year to pick for targets because there's, there's so much that's going to happen around then but yeah any kind of thoughts on what you think we'll be looking at in 2030 
I was going to mention the target as well. I mean, the ambition of up to 11 gigawatts by 2030. I think that if we get a couple of projects through the current CFD rounds, AR4, and Berwick Bank is consented and, and gets built, that can pretty much get you quite close to that 11 gigawatts, maybe with a couple of earlier, more straightforward Scotland projects, as Vicky mentioned. But I think the size of the prize for the rest of it is still to be determined. And that's where I think a longer term target from Scottish government would be helpful to show that sort of period between 2030 and 2045, what they'd like to see, because everything flows back from that, as I was saying. Overall, I, I mean, I'm very optimistic about the you know building this new sector, um, getting the skills in place, the supply chain, and bringing people together and kind of capturing a lot of the things that are going in our favor at the moment, the enthusiasm from both UK, Scottish government, investors, and the whole global wind sector, really, and seeing Scotland as a good place to do business. I think the key is those enabling actions and whether everybody's prepared to, to come together and work for that outcome. Vicky, Ben, thanks for taking part in the episode today. It's now time to de-energize until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find out more about the RE Catapult activities on ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at, at ore catapult.